Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. You are listening to the DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, 1770 Euclid Street, Northwest, Washington, DC. This episode is part of All Things Local, where we highlight DC history, culture, and communities and Washingtonians who have made an impact on our city. I am your host, Ray Barker, an archivist in the Special Collections Department, MLK Library. Today our guest is Virginia author, reporter, cultural archaeologist, Dale Brumfield. Dale lives in Doswell, Virginia, and writes many things, uh, writes about many things. And today we're focusing in particular on a book he wrote titled Independent Press in D.C. and Virginia, an underground history published by the History Press in 2015. Somehow, miraculously, we found ourselves in the studio today, despite the fact that the world is ending because we're getting an inch of snow. Or not. <laughs> uh, but Dale, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Ray. Appreciate it. Uh, um, so I met Dale through sort of some research of my own. Um, our special collections, fortunately, has a lot of these titles in our holdings, uh, we have digitized some of these materials available to researchers on our digital uh, portal called Dig DC. And then some of these um, we're currently getting digitized, and we can nerd out on that in a little bit. But um, I just wanted to ask Dale, I mean, you're a historian and you have an interest in history. And if anybody finds Dale on Facebook or um, Instagram, they'll, they'll see... You know, they don't have to pay even close attention to see your, um, you know, affection, I guess, for history, uh, family history, Virginia history, etc. Can you talk to me either about your first memory of like, wow, this is a thing I'm really into, either personally or professionally, or talk about uh, independent press and maybe how those seeds were planted? Sure. Uh, My father was a tremendous documentarian. He took pictures and wrote everything down. He would drive to Richmond 20 times a year, and he would write the mileage down every time. And my mother used to laugh and say, what do you think, they're moving Richmond each time? So um, really, it came from him and this dying thirst to continually find things and find the source of things and connect dots and threads. And all, all these interesting stories that seemed to come together just were tremendously appealing to me. The book came about after I wrote another book called Richmond Independent Press, in which I wrote about the underground newspaper scene in Richmond, Virginia only. Uh, Now, that book was then nominated for a Library of Virginia Literary Award. So writing those coattails, I quickly contacted my editor at History Press and said, hey, uh, you know, this book was just nominated for an award. What do you say we expand the scope and talk about the underground press in all of Virginia and Washington, D.C.? And he said, great idea. Let's do it. Now, I was a full-time graduate student at the time. I went back to grad school at age 52 at BCU to get my MFA in fiction writing. A round of applause. Thank you. Yeah, 4.0 graduate even while uh, writing two books. So uh, I guess I didn't sleep for three years. But I, I started working on this book, and I found 
this this is absolutely fascinating. I was finding these once again these common threads and these dots that no one had seemed to connect before, um, and, and it was a smart move to include DC because I found out the underground press in the rest of Virginia uh, was a little bit lacking. Uh, so uh, including DC was a good move, and DC was much different than the other papers published in Virginia because in DC most of the papers were published by a collective or a commune. Uh, as they're more commonly known, of young people who came together, whereas in the rest of Virginia, uh, most of the underground press outside of Richmond were published by universities. Uh, students who were disaffected or, or not happy with their student newspaper decided to branch off and start their own paper. And luckily in the 60s, publishing became much easier. It became much more affordable and uh, more people chose to get involved with it and wanting to make a difference. And Dale, can I assume that through this uh, notion of a collective that um, what I call the independent voice, I guess for lack of a better word, do you feel like with these collectives, uh, and we're, we're going to dig a little bit more into this, but just generally speaking, that there's like a, it, there's just like a voice to a person, or, or, you know, what is it? What are the implications of a of a collective versus a university publication? Well, a collective, once again, under a university publication, they would fall under the auspices of the unis of university protocols. Uh, we see that a lot. The universities would crack down on the paper. Students would get scared. They'd you know, be scared they would get kicked out of school. You know, how do they explain that to their parents? So uh, that seemed to have a deadening effect in many cases, whereas the collectives felt were completely not beholden to anyone. They were completely independent, and what set them apart was they established a new protocol of writing in first person. It was called advocacy or participation journalism. Uh, they were writing about events that they were intimately involved in, some of the best coverage of events from the 60s in in the D.C. area, such as the Pentagon marches and the Martin Luther King riots, were covered by these advocacy journalists who had no real journalism experience. It was just because they loved what they were doing and they wanted to make a difference. So they had to find other ways to survive. They had no university funding or any outside money, so they had to fund these papers themselves. They had to sell them, uh, and they sold advertising. So they were completely self-sufficient that way. Right, and so I have a list of some of the titles that we've pulled out of your book. Again, some of these uh, runs of these publications are digitized and available in DigDC at uh, digdc.dclibrary.org. Um, but one of the things I'm, I'm struck by is, um, you know, so one of the criteria for myself personally in, in this is that sort of you can do a, a geographic spec- specificity, uh, whatever, uh, specific to DC. Right. And so never say that word uh, if no. anyone else is listening. But um, And that, that uh, you know, we could run through these a little bit so you can picture the map of D.C. and these little points of where these papers were produced, uh, such as Washington Free Press I have here at 1737 Q Street Northwest. Can we talk a little bit about their history or their, their founding uh, their uh, political angle, et cetera? Yeah, the Washington Free Press was interesting is in that in 1966, it was originally started as an inter-university newspaper. Uh, the six universities in the D.C. area, Howard University, Catholic, American, and a couple of others, uh, all kind of banded together to start this um, 
newspaper that more reflected the community, the university community, rather than a single university. Uh, it lasted only one or two issues, and for some reason it fell apart. There was no interest there. Uh, but then, uh, uh, less than a year later, a group of people got together in a collective and rebranded re re the Washington Free Press, and it was born as what we would consider a typical underground newspaper of the time. The Vietnam War was starting to take off, uh, which was the uniting device with the entire underground press nationwide. But with the Americas going more into Vietnam, the, the Washington Free Press Collective, they made that their rallying call. And then when the new left student movements just started booming that same year in 1967, especially the Summer of Love, uh, and then more people started seeking out the urban areas to be a part of that scene. So more people were gathering at the Washington Free Press Collective, wanting to be a part of it, wanting to be a part of this great thing, this explosion of underground newspapers, which were in direct competition, in a matter of speaking, with the mainstream press. And these underground publishers saw the mainstream press as failing to uh, adequately capture this, the spirit of this new left student movement. So we had all these young people coming into these collectives. Now immediately problems started occurring at the free press because no one had any hierarchy over anyone else. These collectives were uh, had no bosses, no, no one was in charge. Everyone had the same say. So whether you were one of the founders of the paper or you were a 15-year-old right off the bus, the Greyhound from Des Moines, Iowa, you had the same say-so as anyone else. So the complaint was that their planning meetings sometimes would go on for 10 or 12 hours because everyone had equal say. No one could say yes or no to anything. So agreement became a real problem uh, with these papers. So that quickly led to a split. And we see that with all the underground press papers. They split. A group of people say, we don't like what you've become. We're going off on our own. Yeah, and I, was, I have the titles here and then sort of their lifespan. And surprisingly or not, you know, we generally have the sort of 1967-ish start. And their lifespan is sadly or, you know, somewhat expectedly about... Two, two, two years? About two Three. years. Two years is a lifetime in the underground press in the 60s. And then we can talk, is it, is it you know, I, I love thinking about the, the Vietnam War, right? There's, a, there's such a strong, you know, resistance to, to this war, which motivated uh, young people to speak out and speak against it. Uh, and, 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 and they just sort of cycle through that initial impetus and and for budgetary or, or philosophical difference budgetary reasons or philosophical differences they sort of uh dwindle out or can you talk not necessarily just about washington free press but some of these others is that is that sort of accurate well, yeah the the there's one thing that united like i was saying the the one uniter of the underground press was the vietnam war so that's why when they ended the draft in 1972 we start seeing the underground press dying out very quickly i mean they grew from 1967 to 1969 they went from like 24 underground papers around the country to over 400 in 1969, then by 1971, they were down to about 100. So it was a very sharp growth and a very sharp drop-off. It was all attributed to Vietnam because Vietnam was the connecting device. Now, that wasn't the only connecting device. It was really became a display of uh, against all mainstream, all 
what was considered the status quo in the 60s. There was a blowback, you know, the civil rights, uh, a lot of the new left student movement grew out of the civil rights movement. They saw what the African American and the blacks were doing in the early 60s. So, hey, we can do the same thing against the things that we see uh, standing in our way. Uh, that's we saw such an explosive growth in the gay rights movement, growth in the uh, the, the, the black power movement, the women's liberation movement. So all these things were starting to splinter and it emboldened the, 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 what they were standing against Vietnam was emboldening them to stand against other things as well. So we start seeing blowback against all kinds of institutions. And can we talk about like, what some of those, for example? Well, journalism would be the first one. I mean, the, the underground press really did revolutionize journalism because they were covering things that the mainstream press would not cover. Music was not being adequately covered. Uh, uh, the the uh, protests were, they were getting bad information about the protests. They would look at, they go down, the, these students would go down and look at the numbers of people who were protesting at the Pentagon and then read in the Washington Post and say, those numbers don't, weren't right. There's 10 times that many people down there. So it's some of the similar things we hear today. Uh, but the, the underground press though, those people were right in the middle of it. They were there in the trenches writing about what they were observing, what they were seeing, and some of the best uh, coverage of those types of events came from these people who were in the trenches and then in the middle of these things. Yeah, and um, I just had to follow up a little bit on the nuts and bolts of this kind of thing that people are producing these newspapers in a home or an apartment. And right. Like, like, yeah, and, they were and, in a house. Most of them were in a house, which they turned into a collective. Now, printing became a real problem. The Washington Free Press in particular, uh, they had to go through three or four printers. They wound up driving to New York City. Uh, every week, someone had to drive the grid sheets up to New York City to get them shot, printed, and then drive them back for distribution. Uh, there was a group in Washington called the Furies. They had an even bigger problem because they were a lesbian feminist collective, and they published a paper called the Furies. They had to take it all the way to a press in Atlanta, Georgia to get it printed and drive it back because no Virginia printer would touch them. This became a real problem. You can imagine the logistics of trying to do this. And then advertising, not to mention the problems with advertisers coming and going or not paying their invoices. It, it was just, it was chaotic. So hence the short lifespan. Yes. And the Furies are my personal favorite, I believe. And we can talk more about that collective in, in a little bit. But moving on then, so the distribution in and of itself, is was just hand distributed on campuses, or what did that look like? Distribution was a challenge originally because with the underground press here in the D.C. area, the typical news services who handled distribution of magazines would not touch them. So they either had to take them around to newsstands themselves, and newsstands would tell them, look, you're not part of the news service, you're not part of the status quo, we can't stock you on our shelves. So they had to come up with an option. The other option was hand deliver them stand on the street corner and hawk them. And that became the status quo all around the country. Uh, these hippies would get off the bus, they'd get a bundle of 100 papers, they'd go out, they'd sell them for 20 cents a piece, they'd keep 10 cents a piece for themselves. Uh, some of them, they said with, with a paper called Quicksilver Times, they could go out on a sunny day in Georgetown and sell 200 copies in a day. Yeah. So you know, if you're living on five bucks a week, in a collective, you can afford to do that. So uh, the, they were selling this. This became the MO around the country to have these people stand and sell these papers. Now, what they were quickly finding was the hippies and the freaks, as they called them, were not buying the papers. These suburbanites were coming into town and buying one and tucking it under their arm and walking around with it so they would look cool. 
the hippies and freaks either couldn't afford them or already knew what was going on. So their, their primary audience became government employees and suburbanites coming in who just wanted to check out what those hippies were up to. Um, <laughs> I guess I got to find out somehow. That's um, right. uh, and I am, I have two different ways to go with this. I should say this right now though. Uh, the rational observer is oh one of the most incredible, amazing and unforgettable sort of anecdotes I've ever, I've ever heard about this I, sort of scene. If can you, <laughs> I mean, it sort of fits under what you're talking about here in terms yeah. of, the, the, the man or the, the square or the conservative class, whatever, coming and sort of integrating with the, the freak world. Right. And this in particular uh, stands out to me. Could you walk us through that? Sure. What, it was at American University. There was a growing radical presence on American University. And the FBI field office here in Washington, D.C. did not like it what was going on. So they thought, uh, what can we do to disrupt and marginalize the radical influence that's going on at American? So they came up with an idea. They were going to publish their own underground newspaper and distribute it on the campus of American University. It went through a couple of name permutations. They were going to call it Chivara News at one point, and they were going to call it something else, but they finally decided, and I found through Freedom of Information thousands of documents that back up, actual memos that back up how this happened. They decided to publish a paper called The Rational Observer and make it look like it was being published by students at American University. It was a phony underground newspaper. This paper was legend for many years. Nobody was really sure it even existed, but it did. I found a copy of it. 1969, it's on my desk at work. September of 1969, the Rational Observer landed with a thud on the campus of American University, and it is just about the dumbest thing you've ever read. Uh, it was, it's like an underground paper written by your dad, you know, saying, hey, be careful while you're in campus. Don't do anything in college that you might regret later on. And if you've got a problem, if you see someone using drugs, better call the police or call the FBI because they're doing something wrong. So it is the funniest, most ham-handed, silliest attempt at uh, marginalizing radicals you have probably ever seen. And so and it came out, it said issue number two when it came out, so people would think, oh, there was one that came out before this, it must be legitimate. So yeah, they knew what they were doing when they did that. But it is one of the funniest stories in the whole thing. And of course, the FBI was crowing about, they thought it was a tremendous success uh, with no documentation. A work of creative writing. No kidding. It it was crazy. Um, And then this transitions into my next question with a a wider perspective on you and you, your method of encountering these materials. So, for example, the, uh, the rational, or we can call it the irrational observer. Yeah. Um, like, for example, did that come from the National Archives, or where did you find that? No, I had to uh, FOIA the FBI, and then um, I got about 4,000 documents um, all at one bunch. And that now those a lot of those documents are available in the FBI archive now on, online. Because of your FOIA request? Probably because, yeah, once something is FOIA and released, it goes on to their archive. Uh, so I had to thumb through literally thousands of pages of PDFs uh, documents before I started finding these incredible memos of these uh, agents talking about what are we going to do about American University? Well, we're going to start a phony underground paper and distribute it and make it look like it was done by a bunch of you know students. So uh, that and so that just led to the whole story. I just had to put the memos in order and then 
tell the story about it. And it turned out it was it went to court. Later, uh, the Washington District Court said that the FBI broke the law by uh, distributing the Rational Observer. Uh, I forget what law it was they broke, but uh, there was a monetary uh, awards given out to some of the uh, radical leaders around campus because of that. So it really had some very bad blowback on the FBI. Yeah, and I was going to ask, and then we can move on to some of the more particulars of these titles, uh, and then um, move on to your sort of uh, post-writing work and career and other things uh, after we uh, talk about those. Um, But so one of the things here being the capital of the United States, and we're on the quote-unquote world stage in a way, um, do you feel like there's anything uh, indicative or inherent in these titles, uh, in these newspapers uh, that was special to Washington, D.C.? Or did you find comparing it nationally... Uh, if this makes sense, uh, that it was just, yeah, it's just another one of those newspapers that was distributed and made and, and handed out. Yeah, there were... Aside a, from the this uh, Rational Observer. Yeah, <laughs> everything is aside from the Rational Observer. Um, but the thing, it was unique. D.C. had a unique set of circumstances. Uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King had a resounding effect in D.C. We have to remember that a thousand buildings in D.C. were burned in the riots following the King assassination. Uh, So it was particular events resounded more loudly in D.C. than it did in other cities. Other than that, the papers all, the D.C. papers were not that much different from those published in Atlanta or in Lansing, Michigan, or in Los Angeles or anywhere else. It was that they followed the same types of uh, uh, protocols with publishing. They distributed them the same way. Now, they did have a connecting device called the Liberation News Service, which was interesting in that the Liberation News Service started up by two men here in D.C. before it moved to New York. They, uh, it acted like an Associated Press or a UPI of the underground press. So they, they wrote these stories up, and then the underground papers could subscribe for, I think, $20 a month and get all these, pap- all these stories about what was going on in other cities. And that was the connecting device that held them all together. Uh, so And D- D.C. relied heavily on the LNS stories because the turnover was so heavy. Uh, here in D.C., and that, that is one thing that they, a problem they had with Quicksilver Times and the free press turnover was outrageous. Somebody come into the collective, they'd be gone three days later. Uh, so they had to find something that maintained a semblance of unity to their, to their work output. And I interrupted myself because we were talking a little bit more about where you find these things, and just looking through your book here, I know that uh, University of Virginia, Charlottesville, is it there, uh, the Alderman Library, mi- the microfilm collection? So yes. a lot of time uh, they're going through their microfilm to see some of these things? Yes, they have a very good collection. The Underground Press have made this brilliant decision to start micro- microfilming themselves. The only trouble, there's over 450 reels of microfilm of Underground Press papers from all around the world. The only problem is they're in no kind of order. They simply microfilm them in the order that they receive them. So you have to have a guide, and there is a guide, thank goodness, that shows where they are because you might have to go to five different reels to find four different papers. And then, yeah, just uh, just build that into your project scope that you're going to be spending a lot of time going through that stuff. But I'm looking at a scan here of uh, Breadbox, uh, uh, one of these newspapers here. But this is at uh, the James, is it James Branch Branch 
James Branch Cabell Library in, in VCU in Richmond. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And they also have a collection. They have a great collection there, yes, in their, in their archives and special collections department. So, yeah, it's just a matter of going to each university. I went to each university in Virginia and went to their archives and special collections. Just, what do you got? You know, and they just started pulling things out for me. So it was very good that way. Great. And so uh, I want to move on to some of these other titles. I'm still saving the Furies uh, towards the end of this portion of our conversation. But uh, I have a personal connection, actually, to something called, for better or worse, Underground, uh, which makes it a little odd or difficult to search, to research, of course, because these are all underground. <laughs> so it's like you have a genre of music called, uh, or a title of a, of a music magazine called rock music rock, or something yeah. and rock makes it almost impossible and, to research yeah oh my gosh it's just an exceptionally appropriate title for this yes um but i remember i reached out to joyce DiBaggio, and uh, she was the wife of tom DiBaggio, who and correct me uh on any of this was a writer a great writer wrote about himself experiencing alzheimer's as it was happening i found npr did a sort of a recurring series with him and I think his book title was uh, Losing My Mind, perhaps. Yes, it was. Uh, and Joyce was not, you know, I'd reached, part of my job is to um, collect these things, you know, collect these materials and we get them digitized, the donor work. Uh, and so uh, through your book and through your contacts with Joyce, the, the wife of Tom, um, who is deceased, uh, sadly, um, she and I were corresponding about, you know, me coming out to look through his materials, Tom's materials of underground, his issues that she said they're in a box in his closet. Uh, and then many, many months later, her son, Francesco, emails me at seven o'clock at night on a Thursday, I think in October uh, last year, to say, my mother has passed away. Do you, would you come out to Arlington, I think, and, and c- come grab this box of stuff, which I did. And so um, just like a plug for DCPL Special Collections, they are uh, literally being digitized right now. And um, we were, and I was telling you earlier, Dale, before we got online here uh, on air, but uh, that I think we just have a full volume of underground, and I think it's 13 or 15 issues. They're all there, many duplicates, but they're all in great shape. And so, of course, yeah, that's a great that's a great sort of victory or a great win for, for us and for anybody in, interested in this topic. But do you, do you mind talking me through? Um, well, Underground, I wanted to say, if I understand correctly, wasn't just anti-Vietnam. I think one of the interesting things about that, again, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was a mixture of politics. It wasn't just, I'm assuming a lot of these were left-wing stuff with Vietnam, of course. Oh, yeah, they were all left-wing. Everyone. But I think um, Underground, I know, had poetry and art. And uh, was there a mixture of politics, if you want to say that? Yeah, Underground was really interesting because it was the first underground newspaper between New York City and Austin, Texas to appear. It appeared in 1966, and Tom DiBaggio uh, did not start it with the same uh, ideas of the underground press that came later. Tom wanted to make, he had worked at several newspapers, but he wanted to do his own. He wasn't getting able to do the stories that he wanted to do. He had access to great poets, great artists, uh, gay rights activists, and he wanted to bring them all together into this one product. So he and Joy started their newspaper underground and he was not a fan of the sex and drugs advocacy journalism that later underground press espoused. He just wanted to create a paper and do his own thing. And, and uh, of course, a lot of it was did become left wing, but he did run some right wing things. He's, I remember Joyce told me that they ran a pro-Vietnam article once. It caused a lot of problems with a lot of their friends. But Tom said, but this is what I want. I want a paper that captures all viewpoints. So that's underground was different that in that manner. 
Now, they moved more toward the uh, advocacy journalism that the other underground papers were doing along 19, late 67, early 68, before they uh, had to shut it down. Um, but underground was very unique that way. And the only, I think one of the only reasons I could even call it an underground paper is because of the name of it and just what, what Tom was actually trying to do. He was very fearless and very brave with what he was doing. He was embracing uh, things that just no one else was embracing. So that really puts them in the league with uh, the other alternative press and the new left papers of the time. Yeah, and I like, you know, focusing on this issue, which got me into this. I'm hoping to do a panel on it, a, a speaking panel next year, this year, later this year, about, again, the independent voice and that, you know, someone like Tom cares enough about something to find the time and the effort and the money to sort of get this thing up and out there. And one of the things I love, one of the many things I love about Underground is that they hand distributed it on the campus of uh, GW? It was or? GW and American University, but they ran into some problems at American University. <laughs> and it's really funny because I've looked through some of these issues, and not to drill down too much into underground, but just because we have it and I have that backstory and that familiarity, is uh, it seemed that they were really, he loved sort of stirring things up, uh, quoting campus. Uh, maybe you know more about this than I do, but quoting certain. The individuals on campus that are pissed off yes. that they're there. Yes. And so it would just cycle back into the print. Yeah. They, they had a, uh, when Joyce first went onto the campus to start selling copies, uh, she about, had about a hundred of them with her and she was mobbed by students because they had never seen a hippie before. So they came to look at Joyce and one of them asked her, he says, do you believe in free love? And Joyce answered, well, I believe in anything. It's free. And all of a sudden, everybody started propositioning her. And within the director of maintenance, a guy named Don Dedrick comes up and he goes, what's going on here? And, and he just kind of broke the party up and he said, you know, I, this, this paper's filth. You're not going to distribute this around here. Well, guess what? She wound up selling all 100 of them because of his very presence. And then Tom, in the next issue or two after that, saying he wrote a letter and we wrote a story for Underground, and he wrote a letter to American University saying, how, are, how can you let one person dictate what goes on uh, on your campus and this kind of thing? You'd have to throw half of your books out of your library if you follow Don Dedrick's uh, so everything, everything, it kind of served. Tom liked to bring things back around and throw it up in our face and say, hey, we're going to come back again. We're doing this again. Get used to us because we're coming. So Tom was really quite fearless that way. And I love that Francesco, when I was there to pick up those newspapers, as he was handing them to me, said, I think there's a photograph of me, Francesca, as a child handing these out. He said, uh, my mom used me, you know, interpret this any way you want. And I'm paraphrasing from six months ago or whatever. But it was something like, uh, my mom used me as a way to get people over. Oh, look at that. Look at that cute child. Yeah, look at the hippie woman with the baby. Right. And the, selling the papers. Right. Wow. And then um, further investigation, I found a photograph with her, Joyce, credited, and it says, woman with ch holding the child. <laughs> and I'm like, that's got to be him. Yep. That's got to be him. And I yeah. just, I loved that sort of integration of the family with the, you know, with the cause or whatever. I was just doing some good public relations there. They help sales. Great. <laughs> and so uh, we talk about these things in, in um, looking back. And, of course, we talked about how the life is so short of these newspapers uh, for various reasons, but one of the ones that is not defunct and still going strong and has morphed uh, through different ownerships through the years, because I was researching it for today, is the Gay Blade slash Washington Blade. Right. From 1969 in D.C., still going. 
do you do you want to talk a little bit about the the gay blade? Am I throwing you a curveball here? No, no, not at all. It's which very, is not Vietnam related. Let's let's point that no, out. No, it was not Vietnam related. But what you have to realize too about the gay blade is the actual the gay rights movement actually started in 1961, eight years earlier in D.C. when two men, uh, Warren Adkins and Frank Kemeny. Frank Kemeny had actually been fired from his gov- federal government job for being gay or suspected of being gay uh, back in those days and during the Eisenhower years, you could lose your job if you were suspected of being gay. So Frank Kemeny and Warren Adkins came here to D.C. They actually had the first uh, march on the White House for gay rights in 1961. If you can imagine what that must have been like. And it turned out Warren Adkins wrote a lot for Tom DiBaggio's paper, Underground. And I started saying, there's something very interesting about Warren Adkins, and I need to dig deeper. Well, I found out that was a pseudonym. Warren's real name was John Nichols Jr. The reason he used a pseudonym was because his father, John Nichols Sr., was an FBI agent. And uh, John Nichols told his son, he says, look, if you want to be part of this gay rights movement here in D.C., you're going to have to use a different name because I could lose my security clearance if you do this. So he took the name Warren Adkins, and Warren actually appeared in a 1965 60 Minutes show called The Homosexuals, hosted by Mike Wallace, uh, and Warren appears in it as Warren Adkins. Uh, so it, this actually was going on throughout the 60s. It started early in 1961, and these two guys kept plugging along, plugging along, plugging along, and then the Stonewall Riots happened. Now, after the Stonewall Riots, that is when gay rights came more to the forefront, and that's when the gay blade started. So it was actually a decades-long process before the gay blade even came along. And, of course, it was harassed paper. You know, it, it, it ran into numerous problems, um, but it, it took off. And here we are 50 years later. It still exists. So that, that's a remarkable story. It took a long time to get going, but, man, that's staying power. You can't argue with that. Right. In this panel that I'm working on in my head, they're invited to the table, and uh, uh, Lynn, I think her name is, who runs it now, uh, is the editor or the publisher in uh, in Northwest DC. Uh, she is reaching out to some of the founders if if they're still around. You know, oh, that's I great. I know that they she has they have lost uh, some of the founders. Yeah, uh, of course, over this. And you know, the gay time. rights movement really started in 1951 in Los Angeles with the Mattachine Society, and there was a Mattachine uh, Society formed here in D.C., which of course Frank and Warren had both founded too. So it was actually a 20-year process to and get then, this off the ground. Name, where does that name come from? Do the Mattachines. They originated in 1951 in Los Angeles. I don't know where exactly the source of the name. Okay. And then we're going to close this out here, this portion of our conversation with uh, the the Furies Collective, the Lesbian Feminist uh, Monthly that ran, uh, according to the book here, in 1971 and 1973, started uh, on California Street Northwest and then moved to uh, my quadrant, 219 11th Street Southeast, Barracks Row. Uh, And i just pointing out here that that house, and you can go find it, 219 11th Street Southeast, is the only house on the National Register of Historic Places, or the first, I'm sorry, that was sort of designated uh, for this particular history. Right, remarkable. Uh, and they published out of there, and it was a collective of 12 women. Right. Uh, and <laughs> they've been kind of scattered to the wind these days, because we've talked. we talked about my reaching out to a few of them. Right. But do you want to 
quickly talk about them because I again I'm mo- mostly fascinated by that collection. The Furies, the, it is an absolutely fascinating. You know, the women's liberation movement was shattered in 1971 here in Northern Virginia when they declared that gay women could not be a part of it because they thought it was stereotyping the movement and they would be portrayed as man haters. So the the a lot of the gay women who were dis who were just had it with the women's liberation movement, decided they were going to start their own society that was going to be free of heterosexual female and all-male influence. Uh, That's a tall order. So the Furies started at this house in D.C., and their rules were so strict that they started kicking each other out for breaking them. And I'm going to interrupt you. Can I, is it correct, sort of like, if you have a brother, you're not in our group, or if you have a... You have to disown any male relatives, a father, a brother, a male son. You had to disown them to be a part of this group. This is how strict it was. Very severe. Mm -hmm. And then you could show no classist tendencies either. Uh, Rita Mae Brown, the author, the author of the Cat Detective books, was one of the original founders of the Furies. She was the first one to get kicked out because she, I think she asked someone to do the dishes. You don't do that. Uh, so out she goes. They started kicking each other out right and left. Uh, Joan got kicked out. Some of the others, finally, they were down to two people. You know, it's like the Shakers. They had built in obsolescence. Exactly. You know, they, they had failed to, and they couldn't attract new members because of this, because of these strict rules. And, the, and quickly, the nature of their publication focused on? Strictly on female gay rights. Strictly on that. They only, they only accepted female advertising or businesses run by females, and they had to drive all the way to Atlanta and have an all-female printer publish them. Yeah, and I feel like it's a document, a 25-minute documentary waiting to be made. It's got to be made. It is a remarkable story. Right. So we're going to stop here on that segment. I'm making a plug for my department, our department, Special Collections, Washingtoniana, tonight. If the world doesn't end, or even if it does, we'll soldier on with that. It's going to be close. DCPL presents, I think it's still on, Home Movie Day. And this is at Suns Cinema. If anyone's familiar with Suns Cinema... They are at, uh, they're in Mount Pleasant on uh, 3107 Mount Pleasant Street, Northwest D.C. Uh, tonight, starting at 8, Home Movie Day, we reached out to the community at large. D.C. residents submit their VHS tapes largely to be digitized and then screened tonight. I think it's 30 minutes or 45 minutes or not more than an hour. We've been promised there will be a cat somewhere in the films. Uh, I hope so. And uh, G-rated for my daughter. Uh, and so it starts at 8 at Sun Cinema. We are pulling from the community, uh, uh, exhibiting this content, and then pulling from the D.C. Public Library archives, uh, showing some of that. So uh, people barbecuing and going to parades and maybe uh, whatever people did back in the day. <laughs> anyway, so making that plug for tonight. But, Dale, I wanted to move on. I mean, we really drilled down onto your, your book and your research on the history press and this underground press. Uh, moving on now, I'm looking at your press release for uh, Naked Savages, which is coming out March 1st. That's correct. Uh, to, uh, like, very soon. Uh, so, in your free time, um, you're a fiction writer, but uh, can you talk us through, like, your fiction work and what, what that life looks like for you? Yeah, well, you know, I got my a master's in fiction, and after writing three history books in a row, I really wanted to get back into fiction. Naked Savage is, is great because I've written nine books in ten years. Uh, my first book came out March 1st, 2009, and my ninth was coming out March 1st, 2019, and oddly enough, they both have the word naked in the title. So that, I guess it's in my contract that every ninth book has to have naked in the title, but Naked Savages is a is a 
fiction work that I actually started in graduate school in a novel workshop. I got 200 pages into it, and then when I graduated, I just kept working on it. And I thought, you know, this is pretty good. Uh, it's about a documentary filmmaker who goes into Ethiopia at the uh, verge of the 1984 famine to make a documentary of a vanishing indigenous peoples called the Afargals. And um, just chaos consumes the project from, uh, from all sides, whether it's weather, equipment, or just a general cultural and geopolitical unawareness. Uh, and uh, then my protagonist, my director, Tom Desmond, figures, finds out that he's not there to make a movie at all. He's there for a completely different reason. But you're going to have to read this book to see what it is. Right, and I'm holding it up now. I printed it out, the cover there, and your son has some involvement with it. My son, Hunter, is an artist and a filmmaker, and uh, luckily I'm working with a publisher that allowed me to get my family to do my artwork. So that's what I did. My son, Hunter Brumfield, did that. And we we have a a sunset scene or a nighttime scene here. With uh, some monitor on a on a pole here, what is a? Yeah, it's it's kind of a it's kind of like the modern versus the uh, the uh, environment. Okay, uh, that's what the kind of what the movie is. There's Americans going into this in, in, inhospitable place that they know nothing about and are consumed by it. Right, and we're sort of coming to almost to a close here, but I did want to share this one of these other aspects of of you that I have seen through your Facebook and Instagram I mentioned earlier. Like, I love, you know, getting personal here. I love some of the pictures you throw up on Facebook from your the trips that your family, your father and mother took. And walk me yeah. through that quickly, and then I have a follow-up for well, that. Well, like I said, my father, as I was saying at the beginning, my father was an insatiable photographer, and he took pictures everywhere he went. In the early 1950s, 51, 52, 53, they're going across the country. He had a brother who had to move to Albuquerque because he had asthma. So the only thing you could do back then was move to Albuquerque if you had asthma. So they'd go out to visit him and he'd take pictures. He'd document the trip all the way out and all the way back. And he had these remarkable pictures with these beautiful old Buick Roadmaster cars and these, these fantastic buildings and houses and styles and fashion. And my pictures on Instagram are being picked up by 50 style people, 1950s fashion people. So it's really great to see my audience grow. And it was with, the kind of film that he was using that- he used, he used, yeah, Kodachrome film, which has lasted wonderfully. Uh, it, it was, it was the best film to use. The pictures when I scan these slides, I don't even need to tweak them in Photoshop. They look so good still here, 60, 65 years later. Yeah, and then what about some of this like, uh, you know, abandoned homes and some of this other stuff? Like. I've, I fell in with a group of people who were really big into abandoned homes, and there's so many abandoned places that I pass all the time. Uh, I just, you know, and I love going into abandoned places. Once again, it's something my dad and I did. In fact, we went into an abandoned house near Stanton, Virginia once and found thousands of old newspapers and magazines in the attic, and we carted out as many as we could, and that kind of lit a fire under me. It says, you never know what's inside of one of these places unless you stick your head in and look. Right, you know? and, and just to remind everybody, we're speaking to Dale Brumfield, uh, writer, author, uh, death penalty. Uh, we didn't get into that. But I just <laughs> want to ask quickly, that thing about discovering something that was abandoned. I mean, do you learn something about people? I mean, what, is, what do you think that is? Like, someone fled this place. I mean, is there anything uh, about like coming upon a place that has been neglected for 20 years? Is it sort of a, a dis- sense of discovery or mystery? Or yeah, there's, yeah, there's a sense of discovery because you always stop and think. I remember going to a house once and finding a box of letters. And in this, this box of letters had contained a woman in New York had written to these people in Doswell, Virginia, during the Depression, wanting to know if their children could come live with them. Uh, you know, and a story like that, you think, wow, you know, things were so bad that they were looking for 
people that, to send their children to to live. That says a lot about the time, uh, a lot about the people, and really what people endured that we just have disconnected from today. So there is there are things to learn uh, if you look very closely, and that's all. That's a trick. Looking real close and uh, thinking about what's behind it. Start connecting those dots again. I, I'm big into that. And then do you take these souvenirs home? Are you selecting? Rarely, the- rarely. Um, they're not mine, so I usually don't take anything. Uh, great. I, I feel like we didn't get to discuss your um, the anti-death penalty stuff. Do you mind just summarizing in a couple of sentences? Yeah, like- I, I'm the field director for a group called Virginians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Uh, we are at a death penalty abolition group. We are looking to end the death penalty in Virginia. And I think we're succeeding slowly but surely. Yeah, and you're speaking, you're always out speaking, uh, giving lectures to... All over the state. Yeah, yeah, all over the state. Anybody who will listen. Well, great. Uh, Dale, I want to thank you. I have a big plug here. Let me let me thank you after that. We'll put it on hold. But here's the big one. Uh, the D.C. Public Library is, uh, is looking for artists in the community uh, to submit work for the new MLK building that's currently being modernized. So February 1st is the deadline to apply for this. It's an open call to design artwork, as I said, for the glass vestibule of the new library opening in 2020. And the library wants, in quotes, a creative visual representation of Dr. King's legacy as it connects to the library and which reflects multiple perspectives from D.C. communities. And so the selected artists fortunately will receive $10,000 for the two-dimensional vinyl design that would be applied to the interior glass of the new library's main entrance. So to apply, visit this website. The URL link is dclibrary.org forward slash about forward slash opportunities and click on the word blog and then on requests for qualifications so this is a call for artists for work that'll be uh, evaluated and judged and um, you know ultimately included in the new library but now um, thank you Dale for being here a lot to cover thanks for having me Ray I appreciate it yeah did fly Uh, by boy oh boy and have a safe drive out of here tonight thanks this afternoon I'm sorry So uh, this has been an episode of All Things Local on Full Service Radio. We were broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Please visit dclibrary.org to learn more about the library services and programs. Talk to us online at DCPL on Twitter and at DC Public Library on Instagram. Uh, Listen and download the show wherever you listen to your podcast by searching for Full Service Radio. Thank you and have a great day.